Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets, but ideas can change the world. Um, one, one of the things that I've experienced uh, throughout my career is this art, if you will, the art and science of really understanding what is going on, getting to the core of the very processes, both mental and physical, that end up creating outcomes that matter. And um, there's lots of different names for that in those disciplines. We've heard of Lean Six Sigma, Balanced Scorecard. We've heard of a lot of different terms that go into defining how people perform roles in a process using tools to create organizational outcomes. Lots of different terms. What's fun is when we run across people who have actually gone through the education of that and applied it to their careers. More importantly, even, is when they apply it to their lives. And I was able to stun, stumble across a gentleman who's the vice president of cybersecurity at Capital One, has been a vice president of assessment services and product security at GE, and also has written a very interesting book that I'm, I suggest is a bridge to what he's done in the past. Marcelo Carvalho, welcome to The Great Conversation. Thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure being here. And, and welcome to my home, if you will. I call it my virtual fireplace, as you well know. Uh, but let's just dive into it. We don't have a lot of time. Uh, my fireplace never stays lit that long, right? Uh, so we're, we, we don't have a lot of time, but let's get into it. Let's do something here. Let's give everyone a primer on the kind of experience you went through at GE that gave you kind of your lessons learned, if you will, that you've applied later in life. Absolutely. Um, as we know, and we probably have heard in the industry, GE is known for like the leadership program. Um, and that's definitely one of the key aspects. And I was blessed to go through um, several training uh, opportunities in the, in the G Cronville facility, but also um, some other aspects such as, as you mentioned, uh, Six Sigma methodology, the Lean Sigma that's more recent, and then applying that into really drive value, right? And drive outcomes by applying some of this framework. So, those things were such a, a, a key set of competencies that I acquired that, as you mentioned, it transcended from my workplace into my life. And then it took me a while to really understand or to realize that I was doing this naturally without even thinking. And then when you look back in your life, I was like, wait a minute, I'm kind of applying this to my own life. Right? How is that possible? And then um, after that, of course, focusing on the right outcomes, what really matters, it allowed me to basically achieve things professionally and personally that I think to me uh, are, are crucial. And I'm not talking about uh, titles, job titles, and et cetera. It's about impact, right? Impact to the business and impact to my personal life as well. Well, let, let, let's, let's dig a little deeper so people really understand the connection here. Um, and those of you who want to follow up on this, there's an excellent video that 
Marcelo and uh, his uh, executive at the time uh, did on YouTube regarding agile and uh, waterfall, waterfall being the old methodology by which product is created, uh, 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 is coded and created, and agile, the new disruptive um, uh, methodology on steroids, if you will. Uh, and they're wrestling with those two things on the YouTube. So those of you who are not coders, don't worry. What you're going to get, though, is a really interesting exercise on how to think about moving the culture. So here are two executive leaders talking about how do we align the core methodology that runs our company with our cybersecurity practices? How do we embed that, integrate that into the business and get the culture to be allies in it? Can you, can you describe what you did? It was so wonderful, that video. Absolutely. And, and you, you set the stage very well. We had, a, a two, at first, two things that would never converge, which was creating the code and creating the product. Uh, and it has its own pace, its own criteria of what is good and what is not. And that has another dimension, which is how we have to now secure those things. Right, so to basically be standing up against cyber attacks and etc. And at first, it wasn't a good, uh, it wasn't a good match. It wasn't uh, like easy to basically make those two things happen. What we have done then was is taking a step back and see what are the tool sets and, and the, the things that we have in our hands to basically transform this. So that's what we did. We looked at as a process. It wasn't just. Uh, a particular software development or product development was, it's a process. And then we said, how can we adapt this to embed some portions of cybersecurity into it? And that's when we, we use, combine the agile methodology with em embedding cybersecurity as part of that to really reduce the friction and to make it as easy as possible for those engineers to produce the outcome they had to produce, but at the same time meeting this new need, I wouldn't say a requirement, but this need to elevate and protect what they're producing. So it took us a little bit of a couple of iterations to find out that we should not, we should move away from cyber being a, a control point or a choke point in the process to see, well, if we embed this little thing here, in a process they already follow, there's a higher chance of them following. And that is a, is a combination of uh, the agile methodology, cybersecurity, and a little bit of a Lean Sigma as well, which is, of course, you probably have heard that GE was very strong about Six Sigma and most recently Lean Sigma. It was like this trifecta of things that happened for us to be able to uh, develop that process and deploy it within as um, GE. Well, security professionals rarely get that up close to the core processes that are driving value in a company. And what I was so intrigued about by that video is you did understand the process, but more importantly, the, the people in the process were deploying this new methodology agile to speed up their ability to hit their internal company and or 
external company market windows. So millions of dollars are at stake, including their careers, and you're empathetic to that. And, and therefore your, your whole, you, you gotta explain to people so they really get this, that you were not only embedding a new element in the process, but you were giving them, empowering them to take part in it. So they were now aligned with you and having empowered to deploy it. Am I correct? 100%. And I think you, you hit the nail in the head in terms of that was a change, right? That was a cultural change. And one of the things that I learned in my career is that there are three groups of people uh, or two, three, yeah, three groups of people in a change. One are the pioneers that say, hey, would you go there and say, I'm going. Right, so that's the one. Then you have the ones that are like really, really in the back when they say, well, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do. I will let somebody go first. Then if that works, I may consider. And then there is the group in the middle, which is like, not sure if I'm going or not, but I'm also open to it. The secret is this, you need to get the pioneers to basically prove that this may work. Then the next piece you have to work on is actually the middle group, which is majority of the, the people, right? In studies, they say that the pioneers has very small percentage. The ones that are saying, I'm never going there is a little bit bigger than the pioneers, but the majority of them are in the middle. As soon as you leverage the lessons learned from the pioneers in the data points and et cetera, to convince the middle folks to go, you are like, halfway through, if like more than that, 80% done, because then the ones that were so resistant at, at the beginning, they are thinking, well, we are the only ones that haven't embarked in this journey. And they already have results to show you that is working. That's precisely how we did, we basically wrap this thing up was, let's not create a choke point. Let's bring them in, understand their points of concern. Let's try a little bit with some groups over here Let's convince the middle group. And then the ones that were very resistant, they will fast follow the middle group. Yeah, it's so funny. It's so funny. Uh, a guy named John Cotter wrote Eight Steps of Change, Leading Change. And uh, he was known as kind of a guru in the leading change process. And the first thing he said is to develop a sense of urgency. There's got to be a reason to change, an urgent reason to change. What was the urgent reason for the culture to change? And how did you tap into it? The reason was um, we, there were some regulatory, of course, requirements then, but it was the, the new situation where now products were made even more out of software, not wasn't only hardware, like the, that component, and then the reason for change, the primarily one is that everything is now interconnected. So we were talking about things that would be the internet of things or IOT, right? Or they were for better um, remote management capabilities in some of the products that were in the middle of the ocean, right? It was like less costly to the company to enable remote management versus putting somebody in a helicopter to go in the middle of the ocean to you know, uh, provide maintenance in a Christmas tree as uh, those things that are right, right there for oil extraction, right? And 
that was the same. We had to do that in a secure way because the cyber threats were there. There was no option. We had to do it, but we had to be creative on how to do it because the engineers creating products that have to last for 20 years, right? In, in some very you know, far locations to survive heat or cold or pressure because they are underwater, etc. They were building their products in a certain way. And now this new technology components is being uh, included on, and they didn't have the subject matter expertise from a cyber perspective. And there were requirements putting on them and they're, they are throwing their hands in the air saying, you don't know how we produce this, how we create these things. And now you're coming with the cyber requirements to put into my product they have to last for 20 years. And you're coming here and tell me that I cannot ship my product until you tell me it is good. We had to see how to get the win-win, how to get the win from our side, from their side and leverage what we had in our hands. So it was a, a soup of many uh, things that we had to put over there in order to achieve that. Well, and what you did back to empowerment is you, you, you you didn't claim you could become an expert in Agile overnight or all the various components. You got them to do an inventory of the component parts so you could help them. Exactly, precisely. That was incredible. That's exactly, and again, it's leveraging the wisdom, right? That they had that right. I, would, I would not have. Right. Uh, and then combining the two uh, groups expertise. And there was a lot of folks that, definitely work on that. It wasn't just my team. It was like the engineering group for all the divisions and etc. cetera. Um, but yes, it was leveraging the subject matter expertise, but bringing to the table and really work together to say, what would work? It's not one group imposing something over the other group. Uh, we had to be creative. And, and it was a, a very interesting and, and, and you know, very impressive experience to be able to combine such different elements to accomplish something. Well, also, you know, get back to the business for a second. If I'm at the table in the business, I want these things I'm giving to the marketplace to last. So built to last, but built to last in the new digital world is, is a little, a little, a little bit of a laugh because things are dynamic all the time, especially cyber security risks are, are not necessarily built to last uh, unless you're thinking real time. So you had to build a real time component into this as well, not only during the programming cycle, but also in the maintenance cycle. Is that correct? That is 100% correct. Because if you think about it, they, the, the engineering team had the operational technology expertise. Right. We had the 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 information technology plus cyber expertise. But in terms, to your point, on the requirements that exist, they are different magnitudes, right? In IT, we can talk about, I don't know, 30 milliseconds of delay and et cetera. In some of those components, they were microseconds. Yeah. They had to, to you know, fault to a secure way if something didn't happen in, in 10 microseconds. Right. And then 
there was discussions about, well, we need to have a firewall uh, or something similar to this. Well, that's going to consume certain bandwidth of, uh, of the network that we may not have. This would consume certain CPU usage of my processor that we don't have spare or certain amount of memory of, 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 you know, of the device that again, we don't have it because they are in such a, like a smaller proportion that, that we had to leverage their expertise right. because we didn't have it. Only when we realize that, that's when things start flowing. So now I'm gonna throw a curveball. Here's the vice president of cybersecurity, the vice president of assessment services before that, much of what we've talked about was during that period. But there's some things here that are just amazing that can be applied to other sectors of the business, some very germane things here, but also to life. And what struck me when I ran across you is you had written a book. A geek like you had written a book, <laughs> How to Beat Burnout. How to Beat Burnout with Gratitude. And the tagline was a simple path to identify what really matters and unlock the power of gratitude and, and, and uh, live with. Uh, so what I was fascinated with, I started reading this book. I picked it up on Kindle and started reading this book. And what I realized is somehow, some way, you either started with this DNA and this knowledge based on how you grew up and how, what you learned about life, or you have gone through all this experience and lessons learned on moving cultures and process, and now you look back and you apply it to that life and go, oh my gosh, there's a design here. There's a design here uh, that, that is meaningful that apply to both realms. Am I right on that? You are 100% correct, yes. And uh, candidly, it was a, uh, just a recent realization, right? I, I did not realize that until I took the time to really run and have a, this introspection and realize that. But I actually, I went back and walked back my life and I said, huh, I did have those things with me since the beginning. I just didn't know it. And actually that's a little bit of what the book is about, right? The book is about uh, demystifying and bringing awareness about burnout um, is breaking stigmas that people may have about burnout. We talk about the signs of burnout uh, that people, leaders in organizations can pay attention and support their, their folks. But there was an aspect where the way that I wrote the book was with the intent of go back to those moments that were really meaningful to you. And with this perspective right here that I'm giving to you, these guiding questions, reflect back at that time. And what, what is that telling you? Because the reason is that your essence is, has always been there. It may have been shaped by events in your life, but the combination of the events in your life, if your essence, that natural characteristic that you have, will always be prevalent in your life. And that is the key to have a joyful life. And the societal impositions 
um, or values that you pass by you uh, to, from family members or, or country and culture and etc. Start maybe generating some noise over there. And if that is combined with some external stressors, for example, a pandemic, right? Uh, that can lead to burnout, but there is a way to prevent that. And there is a way to basically, that's how I mentioned how to beat burnout. There is a way to beat that, which is nothing else than going back to the things that are part of your essence, the, the events that shape your life, so we can find what really matters and remove all the noise. Because when you remove the noise, the chances of you getting to a burnout state are extremely reduced versus just keep going with the flow. And, and I have an analogy is that if we just keep going with the flow and do not pause to evaluate what I just described, I feel we are almost like a hamster in a wheel. And the problem is that something else is picking up from the different wheels and putting different wheels and you don't know where you are anymore, right? That's even like the, the next level of that. And I think that's where we are today if we don't pause. So let's play a little game here. Uh, at GE, you learn balance scorecard, what a value stream is, right? You learned Six Sigma, you, you learned all these different things. So in your book, what dawned on me is you had realized at some point in your life that your life is a series of value streams. There's people in it who can provide insights on the risks and opportunities at each step of what you call the ladder of life. There are people there if you see them and you're willing to hear them and apply their lessons. So you have this idea of life as a value stream, everything's uh, navigating risk and opportunity, but you're always learning. And with that mindset, I think you are saying to us, if you have that mindset, you can't even get to burnout. That's precisely the, 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 the genesis of this. Uh, and you summarize it really well. I did have the great opportunity to have extremely talented and thoughtful mentors. Mm -hmm. Those are the folks that were showing me a couple of things. And in the book, I tell, I mentioned all of them because they were instrumental to, to tell me where to look and et cetera. But I also had events in my life where I was like, um, I'm going up here. I'm, I'm, I'm climbing the ladder of corporate America, right? I'm going there. And then I fell. And then I'm like, I'm going again. And then I fell. <laughs> it was numerous times, numerous times. And I couldn't grasp what was happening until I realized is that, you know what? I shouldn't, I'm looking at this in the wrong way. I shouldn't be looking at this as defeats or obstacles or, or anything like that for two reasons. Reason number one, if I look at them as obstacles and et cetera, I'm, I'm going with the illusion that I have too much control of too many things. So I'm going back, going to the circles of control, right? I had the false impression that I could control everything. And when you believe in that you know, false um, idea, 
the chances of you getting burnout are really higher. Um, the chances of you uh, acquiring that imposter syndrome every time you fall is bigger. And those things compound. But if you look in a different way, where is that? Everything in life is an opportunity to learn and move forward. That changes everything. I, in, this, in my exercise, my introspection, and to write the book, because uh, it took me two rounds to learn, right? I had, I, I had two burnout um, events in my life. Uh, the first one, I learned how to cope with it. Well, to identify it, to cope with it, and then to understand that I, am, I don't have control of everything. The second one was the one that really taught me why, how I got there and what are the things that drove me over there. And most importantly, what should I do differently from now on? So I'll never come back over there. And I went back to really, really like when I was nine years old. That's when I, I went back that time and revisit my entire life in those tipping points, I would say, with this new mindset of learn, open mind to learn from every situation, to look from the bright side, right? You, I had the opportunity to learn about this, but then finally was what really matters in my life. Is that the entire noise of spinning five plates and being a professional this way, being a father, you know, being able to put foot on the table and support my family and being there for everyone? It is a lot. You have to come back down to say what it really matters. And then you move to the last part of, of this journey, which is I need to be grateful for what really matters. When I, I don't say this in a very cheesy way, I'm saying, really, you need to understand what matters first. So you have the right sense of why you need to be so grateful about those three or four things and not what the society is telling you to do, right? You need to look this way. You need to, you need to live in this house. You need to, you need to have that car. You need to be successful and known. You need to be famous. No, go back to your origin go back to your essence go back to what were the feelings that you had when you were a child i, I mentioned in my book the most pure and truthful feelings you develop when you are a child because at that point you you don't have yet that imposition from society those things that generate the noise those are like the true sentiments that you had and if you're able to tap and understand what they are you can bring them to now adulthood and say, well, this is what really matters to me. You know, I love that because the eyes of the innocent are big. And let me explain what I mean by that. I remember a wonderful teacher I had when I was in second grade. And I remember the school is very large. Her classroom is very large, very happy, beautiful time with this teacher. And I go back 20 years later, wondering if she had retired. And, um, and of course, I only know her name, her unmarried name, because when I was in second grade, she decided to get married 
and I was devastated because I was going to marry her when I was. (laughs) (laughs) And so all I know is her name was Miss Obermeyer. And I go to the school and I go, was there this teacher 20 years ago called Miss Obermeyer? Is she still here? And they go, we have no idea, but the only one who is here is Miss whoever. And she's in kindergarten now, and she'll be out in about 10 minutes. So I lean against the post, and here comes Miss Overmeyer. And she's got two kids, hand in hand, and she's coming at me, and I'm looking at her. And before I say anything, she goes, Ronnie. My eyes were big back. The school looked very small to me at, you know, at 25 years old. Looked very small. The teacher looked as beautiful as ever, but the, the, but the circumstances were very small. But you know those eyes, those innocent eyes as a second grader saw a beautiful human being who would recognize me 20 years later. And so eyes are big and I love how you started that way. You started with you know, your circumstances of um, uh, the, the place you lived in. And, you, and, and your gratitude toward your father, even though you only got to see him a few times in your life, you go through all these gratitude steps and you say at the end of each of those chapters, you go, pay attention because I'm coming back to this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> pay attention to this because I'm coming back to this. And it was this back to your um, ladder of life. You're always learning, but with gratitude. You're always learning, but with gratitude. So I would apply that later to those people I've met who are fighting cancer, those people who have had devastating, you know, marital uh, disruptions, uh, even those people who have been in intense conflict in, war- in, in wars and uh, around the world. The, one, the ones who seem to survive had this intense gratitude for everything the good and the bad. And getting to that mental state, have you found, do you think that's a natural thing that you developed over time? Or do you think people can be taught how to have that sense of gratitude? No, uh, people can be taught, absolutely. I had a, a great support system right after my second episode of burnout, which it was recent, was back in 2020. Uh, I had to go back to my support system. Well, of course, my family, my wife have always been there. But um, I went back to my psychologist, right, to really understand. I said, I need to crack this code. I mean, first, I'm a geek. So for me, it's always cold, right? So I said, I need to crack this code because I don't understand how I'm back here. And, and with her support, she came back and said, you know what? You need to reflect where you were. Uh, before and how you got here and find what is the common theme that you have, right? So I took that to the whole and I'm like, okay, I need to come up with my own way of figuring that out. Um, And then actually in my book, I I, I describe how I got there, right? Uh, It was about understanding clearly what it is, what I need, what I want, what I have, right? But most importantly, who I am. We, most of the time, if we don't pause, we focus only the first two. 
is what I need and what I want. And those can be very badly influenced by society, by the norms that we have today and et cetera. I'm not saying that everything on that column is true or is the right thing, but many of them are, we may not need, we, and therefore we may not want. But if we focus on what we have and who we are, right? Those two things combined is basically what I mentioned before it is, what I have is what I'm grateful for. Yeah, no, that the, the intersection between recognizing what you have, that is in a positive way, the intersection of that with who you are, that is your true identity independent of things or roles, who you are, your core values, that intersection is the path to value. Ah, uh, 100%. That is the secret sauce, I would say, that I reserve in the very end of the book because I bring the reader through that journey. We have, there is no cut, shortcut. We yeah. have to go through that process of, of back to the childhood, those moments, like the big eyes that you mentioned, and look with that, with those big eyes, so you can get to the point where you can do go through this exercise with these columns and saying needs, wants, haves, and, and, and I am. And then that would be basically uh, the map, right? Or, 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 or the, the, when you're cracking the code per se, you cannot just go straight to listing out things. And, and it took me a while as you can see for now, but by now, but uh, I think now it's crystal clear to me that this allowed me to understand my essence. I've been doing Lean Sigma since I was a child and I didn't know, right? I've been doing like uh, open growth mindset since I was a child and I didn't know, I didn't have a label, but now I'm like, okay, I know how to use it. And that's why this has been a great, conversation with Marcelo Cavallo. Um, and in it, I think we realize, all of us listening to this, that by the grace of God, he's been on a search for a single source of truth for a long time, professionally and personally. Thank you so much, Marcelo, for sharing not only your life, but what you've learned in your career as well. Thanks so much, Ron, for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure and uh, looking forward to future conversations. Thank you so much.